Hey everyone, and welcome to De Facto. This is a podcast from the perspective of two students who are currently trying to survive the IB. I'm Amelia. And I'm Ju-Yi. And today, instead of preparing for the BMAT, we're going to be talking about neurobiology. Okay, so this might not have that much to do with neurobiology, but we thought we were talking about it anyway because it's interesting. So, Amelia, do you feel sleepy right now? I mean, when do I ever not feel sleepy? No, <laughs> comparatively, I don't feel all that sleepy at the moment. <laughs> I mean, that's a good point because to be fair to us, we're recording this at about two o'clock and usually, actually, this is a random fact, but apparently teenagers have a kind of different sleep cycle, which I'll talk about later, but they have a different like awake sleep cycle from adults and it's suggested that we might actually be three hours behind. So you know there's like this conventional thing for adults where they always get sleepy at around two o'clock after lunch and actually maybe for us that might be about five o'clock, which also explains why at, for some reason when I was younger I would always crash out at four o'clock until and get up at six o'clock and no one could understand why because they would always be sleepy at two o'clock. So maybe that's why we're still awake, because for us it's still 11 o'clock in the morning, mentally. But anyway, so, the thing about sleep, right, is that teenagers need 8 to 10 hours of sleep. And now that we're on half term, I have been getting enough hours of sleep, but during term time, yeah, let's just say it's not, it's not possible. So, <laughs> let's talk a quick bit about the symptoms of feeling sleepy, which I'm sure everyone knows very well, unfortunately. So, you know, you get a headache, you get tired, your eyelids start to close. If this sounds familiar right now, you should be getting more sleep. <laughs> but yeah, we thought we'd talk a bit about why. So, the reason for this is because of this thing called circadian rhythms. So circadian as a word is actually really interesting because it comes from the Latin words circa and diem. So circa means almost and diem means day. So actually, we don't actually have a daily sleep cycle, which is quite interesting. Actually, the reason for this is that the sleep cycle is usually slightly longer than 24 hours, which is why it's called circa. So actually, there was this experiment done where if you put people in a cave where they aren't experiencing light, because light is one of the things that helps regulate our circadian rhythms. If you put people in there, they actually have like longer days to them. So that's quite interesting. So what, is, what controls the circadian rhythm? It's influenced by melatonin, which is this hormone produced by your pineal gland, which is a small P-shaped structure near the center of the brain. So most people might know melatonin because of sleeping pills, like for instance, when you can take them after jet lag. But melatonin, what it does is it makes you sleepy. So how does this work? Basically, melatonin production is stimulated by ganglion cells, which are a type of cells in your retina, which detect um, an absence of light. So this absence of light is passed to a suprachiasmatic nucleus, which tells the pineal gland to produce melatonin. So basically what that means is that if you have no light, then you are told to produce melatonin, which makes you sleepy. But... Actually, melatonin doesn't tell the whole story of sleepiness. Adenosine also plays a part, so we won't have time to go into it completely here, but you should definitely look it up because it's really interesting. And spoiler alert, it kind of has to do with adenosine triphosphate, which we all know as ATP. So briefly, how adenosine works is the longer you're awake, the more adenosine is produced, which creates a sleep pressure. So sleep clears your adenosine, which is why you might not feel sleepy after you get up. We might do another episode on sleep, actually, because this is all really interesting. But for now, let's get into the brain. 
Yeah, I think that's a really interesting introduction. I especially like the experiment where they actually sent men into a cave, and despite the fact that they had no natural light whatsoever, they still fell into this circadian rhythm, and they still woke and went to sleep at specific times during the day. I think that's really cool. But now going on to something a bit different, we're jumping around a bit this episode, but did you know that your brain isn't actually fully formed until you're 25? In many cultures, you become an adult at age 18, but actually your um, your brain and your prefrontal cortex are not developed until much later. So although we give young people the ability to vote, to enlist in the army, to buy alcohol, to move out, and so many more privileges at age 18, the increasing evidence shows that some of the most important areas of the brain involved in decision-making are not actually fully developed at that age. So the main area of this is your prefrontal cortex. So if you put your hand on your forehead, that is basically where your prefrontal cortex is. So this is the area of the brain that is involved in a wide range of functions, including focusing on attention, predicting consequences of your actions, impulse control, planning for the future, to name a few. And this is why sometimes teenagers can have questionable impulse control and planning of their own lives. So the brain, even though the prefrontal cortex is actually at the front of your brain, your brain develops in a backward to front manner. So that's why the prefrontal cortex is the last to develop. But how does this development actually happen? And what does it mean to say a brain is developing? So time for some IB bio. Um, Due to coronavirus, they've kicked out the options from our syllabus. And one option was neurobiology, which we were very excited to study. So it's a bit sad, but it does save us some time. (laughs) But anyways, let's have a look at the first bit of the neurobiology section. So the first part of your brain essentially to develop is your neural tube. And this happens in a process called neurulation. In humans, this neural tube develops during the first month of pregnancy. And this is essential as the neural tube becomes the CNS or the central nervous system. So early in embryonic development, the embryo differentiates into three different layers, which call the ectoderm, the mesoderm and the endoderm. Eventually, the ectoderm becomes your nervous system and your skin, the mesoderm becomes the connective tissue, and the endoderm forms the linings of your internal organs. So part of the ectoderm forms what's called a neural plate, and this neural plate grows inwards to form like a little neural groove. And then this neural groove separates from the ectoderm to form the neural tube. Um, which grows longer as the embryo develops. So this neural tube becomes the narrow canal in the centre of your spinal cord and it forms the basis for your CNS. So as the cells in the neural tube divide by mitosis as the embryo grows, some differentiate into neurons and this development of neurons continues throughout the period of uh, pregnancy, both in the brain and the spinal cord. So neurons, when they're first made, are immature neurons, 
and they can move to different parts of the brain. So some neurons are produced in one part of the brain and then they'll move from here to another part which is known as their final position. And usually unless there's been damage, the neurons don't actually move from this position. But what are immature neurons? So from GCSE bio, we'll remember that a neuron consists of a cell body with little branch-like structures called dendrites coming off it, and an axon, which looks like, like a tail, coming off the end. An immature neuron is basically, you take the neuron and you chop off the um, axon and the dendrites, so you're just left with the cell body. And so these like cell bodies, they're what are actually able to move. And when they reach their final destination, this is when the axon grows. And the axon is the long tail-like structure that grows out the end of the cell body. And this is what carries the electrical impulse, which allows information be to be traveled along your nerves. So when the axons are damaged, as long as the cell body remains intact and there are the right growing conditions, the axons can actually grow back and repair themselves. The purpose of the dendrites and axons is to reach the cells that it wants to communicate with. When it reaches the cell, a synapse develops, and a synapse is a small gap between where two neurons meet. And when the nerve impulse reaches the synapse, chemicals called neurotransmitters are released, and these diffuse across the synapse, allowing the message to be passed on to the next cell. So that's quite a lot of information there, and quite a lot of fancy names thrown in, but that's kind of the process. We can see that the central nervous system and neurons are one of the first things to develop in the embryo, and they're so important and just form the basis of human life, essentially. But as well as building new synapses and new neural pathways, we get part of the developmental process is actually getting rid of unused synapses. So when synapses are used, they leave chemical markers which strengthen these specific connections. And hence, when these connections are unused, these markers disappear and the synapses disappear. I think that's really interesting, especially because, you know, if you consider that if they disappear, then and this happens when you're younger then i think it's quite interesting to consider how that links just as a random note to languages because for some reason i've been thinking quite a lot about languages recently and people always say if you want to be bilingual if you want to be multilingual learn it when you're younger because when you're older it's much more difficult so i was actually looking um while i was spending time on youtube as you do um i found a video on this and i thought it was quite interesting because it actually mentioned that when you're younger you use both sides of your brain to learn a language. So you get the emotional side and the logical side. And that might explain why, you know, when you're younger, you're, it's easier for you to adapt to different cultures. Also because as you take in a language, you also have kind of have to take in the culture and this is why they say things the way they do. So it actually showed that when people are older, they have like, they only use one side of their brain to communicate and, and learn a language. And this is usually the logical side. So I think it's quite interesting to consider how, you know, the loss of this synapse might actually impact a lot of things. Yeah, definitely. And they say that actually your brain is most kind of adaptable when you are younger. And this is known as neuroplasticity. And this forms the basis for a lot of like really cool phenomenon. Like we've looked at phantom limb syndrome before. And later on in this podcast, we'll have a look at where 
actually you can survive with just half of your brain. And this is thanks to um, neuroplasticity and your brain's ability to remove and kind of create new neural pathways and constantly adapt to the environment around it. Okay, but on the subject of neural networks, let's introduce something a bit different. So if you think about AI, how AI works is artificial neural networks, right? And the fact that it says neural networks kind of makes us think of the brain. So I looked a bit more into this. And actually, um, psychologist McCulloch and his student Pitts in 1943 proposed that the brain combines multiple operations into one, so true, just true or false, and from there, language, etc. develops. So while this is not true, this is actually how artificial neural networks work today and how AI learns. So I thought it was quite interesting to consider whether the brain and AI actually use similar neural networks and similar systems to gain information. So I think that is already showcases like one way in which it's different because we and AI learn things differently. Another example is math because we don't really, you know, if I hold out a bright orange carrot to you right now, there'll be a simulation of rods that are red and yellow. That's why you see orange. Actually, that's not true because you don't have a yellow um, cone. And sorry, it's not rods, it's cones, my bad. Um, and yeah, but the, basically you get stimulation of your cones and that's what allows you to process the carrot. But for a computer, how it registers and learns is using math and converting it to a binary system. So that's quite different as well. I thought, therefore, it was quite interesting to consider the interplay between brain and AI if you, since we see that it's so different. So how it, what are the benefits of AI? Well, how AI is being used right now in regards to the brain is that it's used to develop models, for instance, deep learning, to find how the brain makes connections. So for example, we were looking, just because I talked about languages just now, the, they, they are looking at how the brain makes connections between words. So for example, if I say bright right now, you probably will think of a specific colour. So for instance, if I said bright, maybe you thought of bright red or bright orange, right? And actually, that's what they're doing with the machines right now. So they're training an artificial intelligence to do this, to predict what the next words are going to be. And then they use how the artificial intelligence learned this and how it built up the system to see, oh, maybe that's what happened in our brain. And then they improve the machine and then, you know, improve the model of the brain in that way. So that's how they're using it. Yeah, I think that's really cool to see actually how not only is our understanding of the brain influencing our use of AI, but also how our use of AI is influencing how we understand the brain and looking at that interplay between the two and how actually they both inform each other and give us a better understanding of the brain and AI. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also interesting to consider how, you know, artificial intelligence might not just be to supplant us as is one of the theories nowadays, but actually it's to help us better understand ourselves and how we are and who we are in the world. So now that we've discussed the brain and how it develops and how that links to AI, we thought we would take a complete 180 turn and talk about the brain's components. So... First of all, let's talk about water because everyone loves water and that's totally not a call out to myself for only having drunk two glasses of water today. But anyway, I digress. So it turns out, right, actually, let's ask Amelia for an estimate. How, how much of us do you think is water? My estimate would probably be maybe 70%, but I'm not sure. 
No, they're definitely solid because babies, it turns out, are around 75% water. But just as a side note, that's actually very similar to a fish. So, you know, when babies are born, they're as wet as fish. But anyway, humans as we are today are probably around 55 and 65% water. But focusing on the brain specifically, it's almost 75% water. And that's similar in water quantity to a banana. So, you know, next time you need an analogy for the brain, your brain is a banana. So that's fun. But anyway, what happens if you don't drink enough water is quite a good way to show why the brain needs water. Because then you see what happens in its absence. So, if you don't drink enough water, it's been shown that your brain has to work harder. So studies have shown that it needs more oxygen and brain power. Actually, if you don't drink enough water, your brain even temporarily shrinks. Beyond a couple days of not drinking water in extreme circumstances, your body starts shutting down these vital organs, for example, the brain. So make sure you drink enough water. But on the subject of getting enough water, you don't have to just get water from, well, drinking water. So for example, strawberries, broccoli, cucumbers, they're all over 90% water. And actually it's suggested that part of our food intake actually contributes to our water consumption. But going back to the brain, there are more specific links to be made. So there's a specific link with memory, attention span and fatigue, which was confirmed by a systemic review and meta-analysis. So the reason why I specifically say systemic review and meta-analysis, well, basically, a systemic review and meta-analysis is where you look at different studies that have been done. It's a study that looks at different studies that have been done, and you take all these studies together and get conclusions from it. And so you can see how this review of studies makes it more reliable because you have a huge data set and you control for all the different variables, and that allows you to look at the conditions and see whether this can be extrapolated to a wider population. So this study found that not drinking enough water is particularly bad for attention, executive function, and motor coordination. And this was true despite the heterogeneity of studies, which basically just means that the studies were really different, but they all showed the same thing. So I thought it would be interesting to consider where, of which part of the brain controls these things. So it turns out that the attention is controlled by the frontal lobe. And the same goes for executive function and also for movement, although the cerebellum, which is the nearer to the back of the brain, fine-tunes movement. So I tried to find which parts of the brain need the most water, but didn't come up with results. But I think like just the fact that all of this is linked with the frontal lobe, and especially considering how the frontal lobe is the last to develop, as Amelia explained just now, I thought it was quite interesting to consider that this potential link might just show that this is, what, um, this is why not having water is particularly harmful. It also, the study also found that this, all this like, deterioration of function was in line with how dehydrated you are as a percentage of your body mass. So basically, the more dehydrated you are, the worse cognitive impairment, where cognitive is your ability to know and perceive. But the mechanism of all of this wasn't explained, even though I went through quite a few Google pages. So I thought it was quite interesting to consider how, you know, they never teach us about the brain in school, really. And the only instance where we would have learned about neurobiology was in the option. So I think it's quite interesting to consider why they don't teach it to us. And I think maybe part of the reason why is because of complexity, but also because there's just so much more we don't understand yet. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's such a complex organ and there is definitely so much more left to understand. And... So as well as the water being essential for the brain, the brain also needs fat. 
So I wonder, what do you think of when you think of fat? Perhaps you immediately relate it to being to being fat, or perhaps you automatically think of all the bad things it does, because fat's bad, right? It seems that our current society is currently at war with this demonised food group. Whilst millions of people tackle obesity, on the other hand, there are millions who um, whose fear of this essential food group is literally causing their body to shut down. So let's look at it from a different perspective. Forget body image, forget what you look like. Let's look at fat and the brain. So the brain is around 60% fat. But wait, we've just said that the brain is 75% water. So how does this work? Well, it turns out both figures are right. When the brain is in your body, it is 75% water. However, if you were to take out the brain, drain all the water from it, then the dry weight of the brain itself is 60% fat. So that's where those figures come from. (laughs) But why do we need fats? Well, essentially, the brain is built on fat, but runs on glucose. So, so many of the brain's cells are actually based on fat. Um, furthermore, fat, there are lots of like fat-soluble vitamins, such as vitamin A, D, E and K, which all transported to the brain and need to dissolve in, the, um, in fat. So, fats break down into fatty acids, and one group of these are essential fatty acids, or EFAs, and these cannot be synthesised by our body, so they need to come from food. And sources of these particular fats might be olive oil, avocados, nuts, seeds, oily fish, and these foods are all absolutely essential for the functioning of our brain. I think that's quite interesting, because I remember when I was smaller, I always had to take this thing called cod liver oil. I'm not sure if you you have also heard of it, but basically... There was this bottle of Scott's liver oil that we had to take, and it was orange flavored, and I hated it because it tastes like Panadol. But basically, we had to take that, and it it's always advertised on it that it aids brain development. And I think you know it's quite interesting to consider how actually this thing might actually have been giving us these essential fatty acids that helps our brain develop. Yeah, definitely. I think there's. I mean, a lot of people know that actually you do need fat to your brain, but nobody really knows why it's also a bit of a mystery and so I wanted to talk briefly about two types of fat that are absolutely essential but that we have deemed absolutely awful so these are cholesterol and saturated fats now we're all told to steer clear of saturated fats they're not good for you to lower your cholesterol to reduce your risk of heart disease and all these things But actually, saturated fats uh, form the fundamental building blocks for brain cells. And interestingly, the richest source of um, saturated fats is actually human breast milk. So it's actually in nature, like when you're first born, you need this much saturated fat for your brain development. Um, So it's not all bad. And then cholesterol, you have two types of cholesterol. You have good and bad cholesterol. And we never really differentiate them. We just look at it as a whole and say cholesterol is bad. But actually, cholesterol, the good cholesterol, forms so many sex hormones, such as estrogen, progesterone and testosterone. And these are all needed for the healthy brain, for the healthy function of the brain. So we've looked at why the brain needs water. We've looked at why the brain needs fat. Now let's have a quick look at why the brain needs so much blood.
So in mass, the brain makes up about 2% of our body. So it's fairly significant, but it's still pretty small. But it actually consumes about 20% of all of our body's energy. So why does it need this much energy? Well, blood delivers glucose and oxygen, and these provide energy for the brain cells. In our brain, it's estimated that we have about 86 billion neurons, and each of these fire about 200 times a second. That is a lot of work that your brain's doing and needs energy for. So what happens when you don't have enough of uh, blood? Well, essentially your brain begins to shut down and you lose your cognitive function. And a lot of um, really serious like health conditions cause a lack of blood to the brain. For example, a stroke that causes lack of blood to the brain. Um, and these can often result in permanent damage, if not death. So that was very brief, but that just goes to show the importance and like a bit about why our brain needs so much blood. And so now we've gone through like all the things the brain needs, we thought we would talk about what happens when it goes wrong. And first of all, I hope all of this information hasn't caused you a headache, but if it has, I'm going to explain exactly why it's caused a headache. So, first of all, I thought we'd talk a bit about headaches and migraines. So, the distinction between headache and migraine is that headache is, you know, literally, as it says, head pain, whereas migraines are the type of headache that's more continuous and feels more severe. So migraine is actually a type of primary headache, and where primary headaches are caused by an overactivity of pain sensors, so that's why you feel pain. Whereas secondary headaches show underlying causes, for example, you might have a headache because of a tumour, because of influenza, because of dehydration, where basically it's not just because, you know, there's a lot of brain activity, it's actually because it's a symptom of something else. So... I did say I would explain how a headache is caused, but actually we don't know as with so many things about the brain. But I am here to present a few theories. So one theory is that a headache is triggered by waves of activity of excitable brain cells. And basically what this means is that, you know, your brain cells just work really hard. So this causes your blood cells to narrow, and that means that it's harder for blood to go through. So that means that your brain has to work harder to get the things that it needs, and that's why it hurts, because, you know, usually if you have to work harder, it hurts. Life lessons on the podcast. But yeah, so research has actually shown that serotonin and estrogen also contribute to this phenomenon. So serotonin is a hormone that lets the brains and your neurons, which are the cells of your nervous system, communicate. So fluctuations in hormones, as you know, um, most notably in the menstrual cycle, can cause blood vessel fluctuations, which, you know, as with any fluctuation, usually results in pain. Estrogen can also have a similar effect. So estrogen naturally rises and falls across women in accordance with the menstrual cycle, where it encourages the building of the uterus lining, um, leading up to ovulation, and then later on, estrogen falls. So researchers think it's either blood vessel fluctuations or lower levels of estrogen that cause this headache. But in re- um, regardless, they think it results in higher sensitivity of face and scalp nerves to pain. And therefore, that's why, you know, they have suggested that women get headaches more often. Whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's not great if you're suffering from a headache or a migraine. 
but actually having a look at a few of the theories as to why that might happen is really interesting. But if you remember a few episodes ago in anaesthetics, we said that the brain itself can't actually feel pain. So pain is detected by pain receptors called nociceptors. And there are none of these nociceptors in the brain itself. And this is what allows surgeons to operate on brain tissue without needing anaesthetics in the actual brain. So why do we still get headaches? Well, again, we're not really sure. It's still a bit of a mystery. But one theory is that there's three thin layers of tissue between your skull and your brain. And these layers contain nociceptors, and these could potentially trigger the pain that we've experienced during a headache. So let's get into the next topic of also pain in the brain, but not actually in the brain, because as Amelia explained, we don't actually have pain receptors there. But Amelia, have you ever heard of sphenopalatine ganglioneuralgia? No, but I'm very impressed you managed to say it. <laughs> I think I'm impressed as well because I have no idea if I said it right or completely buttered it. So maybe actually the reason you don't understand is because I said it completely wrongly. But regardless, what if I say brain freeze? Have you heard of that? Yes, definitely. Yeah, so I'm actually quite lucky. I think I've only really experienced brain freeze once, but it was a horrible experience and I never, 1010 would not recommend. But anyway... It was basically this instance where I was drinking the Slurpee from 7-Eleven, which is basically this drink made of complete ice. And I think I was drinking it really quickly because back home in Malaysia, it's always really hot and, you know, you really want that cool stuff. So I was drinking it really quickly. And then my head started hurting and I knew what was coming, unfortunately, because brain freeze is something that's quite well documented and people talk about it quite a lot. So what is brain freeze, the physiology behind it? So actually, brain freeze is a rapid change in temperature at the back of your throat, at the juncture of the arteries that are there. So there are two arteries there. One of them feeds blood to the brain, and the other one is where brain tissue starts. So as with the other conditions we've discussed, we don't actually know why. But again, I'm here to prove some theories. So no, not prove some theories. I can't do that, but suggest some theories. So... One theory is that while the brain brain can't actually feel pain, there are receptors, like Amelia mentioned, around the junction. So when the cold hits, the arteries dilate and contract quickly, which basically just means they expand and then go back to their usual size quickly, and the brain interprets this as pain. Another theory is that the sudden increase in blood flow to where the brain tissue starts makes this um, artery get bigger. And, you know, if there's an abnormal thing in the arteries if there's a sudden change in size then this is registered as a different thing and therefore it hurts a third idea is that it activates the trigeminal nerve which causes blood vessels in the head to constrict and dilate quickly and basically you can see how all of this basically just says that all these theories are just that brain freeze cause sudden changes in arteries which is what causes it to hurt so this would this third theory would actually explain why some people don't get brain freeze because some people's trigeminal nerves are more sensitive than others, whereas the other two theories, you know, all everyone has these arteries, so they wouldn't wholly explain the picture. But we're still not sure yet. So what is the cure to brain freeze? Well, stop drinking it. But if you can't do that, if you really can't help it, then doing something warm might help. So for example, just pressing your tongue to the roof of your mouth might help because it brings warmth to the spot and try and kind of counteracts this change. And drinking warm water might also help for a similar reason. 
In any case, brain freeze should go away soon unless it's severe and chronic, which basically just means that it happens for long periods of time, in which case, please go and see your doctor. So on that very pleasant note, let's talk about another very pleasant thing, which is sleep paralysis. So what is sleep paralysis? Well, it's where you can't move or you speak or as you're falling asleep, or where in the middle of sleep you wake up and you find that you cannot move or speak. We're not sure why it happens, but it's been linked to insomnia, disrupted sleep, for example, jet lag, narcolepsy, which is basically this chronic condition where people suddenly fall asleep, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, panic disorder, and family history of having sleep paralysis. So there are two kinds of sleep paralysis. When it happens when you're falling asleep, it's called hypnagogic, and when you're waking up, it's called hypnopompic. So hypnagogic, happen, hypnagogic sleep paralysis happens because when you fall asleep, your body usually relaxes. I mean, that's how you go to sleep, right? And usually as this happens, you become less aware of your surroundings. So you don't notice that this is happening. But if you have sleep paralysis, then while your body is relaxing, you're still awake and therefore you notice. And that's why, you know, even though you don't have control over your body, you can still be aware of your surroundings and that's what causes it whereas for hypnopompic sleep paralysis this is probably more well documented and well known it's basically something that happens during the rapid eye movement stage of your sleep cycle which essentially is when you're dreaming so generally actually when you're dreaming you don't have control of your muscles i mean imagine having control of your muscles while you're dreaming of running away from something you would you know maybe get out of your bed and run and that might not be a very good thing evolutionarily. So evolution has made sure that we won't do that. So during the rapid eye movement stage of sleep, when you're dreaming, you don't have control of your muscles. And usually this ends when you get out of that stage of your sleep cycle. So, you know, then that's how you regain control of your muscles. But during sleep paralysis, this doesn't happen. And that's why you have this occasion of waking up but not having any control over your muscles. So one estimate says about only um, 8% of people explain sleep paralysis at some point in their lives. Usually the first time is between 14 and 17 years old. Personally, I've not had any experiences with sleep paralysis. Neither have I. However, I do actually have a friend who has experienced some sort of sleep paralysis. I haven't talked to her much about it, but as far as I'm aware, she's experienced it for quite a long time. and It doesn't really bother her anymore because... She's just kind of used to it. But it's quite weird to actually think of something, somebody you know experiencing that. And you can imagine if you're new to it or if it hasn't happened before, it could potentially be quite scary. Yeah, I mean, like, everyone who's experienced it based on what I saw online have always said it's a really anxiety-inducing experience. I mean, just imagine losing control of your limbs and knowing it. That's honestly so scary. So... In regards to sleep paralysis, in isolation, you know, if it happens once over like, you know, 20 years, it's fine. Only if it's recurring should you be worried. But sleep in general is really interesting. And this has actually made me think that maybe we should do an episode on it in the future. Definitely. I think that'd be a really fun episode to look into if we get around to reading the book. Um, But finally, let's have a look at something called hemispherectomy. So... This is the total or partial removal of one half of your brain or disconnecting the two sides of your brain. Now, 
this sounds pretty drastic and it is quite a major uh, procedure. It was first performed in 1928 by Dr. Walter Dandy to treat a cancerous brain tumour. And in the 1950s, it first became used as a treatment option for epilepsy that was not curable by medicine. This sounds really interesting, but oh my gosh, I can't imagine removing half of your brain. I know, it's such a weird thought. And I mean, mostly they do it in childhood because as we talked about earlier, this is when your brain is most plastic and most able to adapt. But understandably, it's still a very risky procedure. Now, I thought we'd have a look at one particular case study. And this is actually when I first heard about hemispherectomies. So I was a bit of a weird child. When I was younger, I loved just watching YouTube videos and documentaries about obscure conditions that nobody had heard about and had no relevance to my life whatsoever. Do you know what? I think I know this story that you're about to talk about just because I also watched an, a very obscure documentary about someone who experienced the condition. But let's see what you have to say. So I was, you know, procrastinating watching these videos and then this one popped up about a girl called Jodie. So Jodie was three when she had her first seizure. Before then, she'd led a normal childhood and she was she had completely normal medical health, she had a normal development. But when she was three and in kindergarten, she developed, she had her first seizure and was immediately rushed to the hospital. Very quickly, the seizures got worse and worse until they were happening every three minutes. So Jodie had a rare condition called Rasmussen's encephalitis. I don't know if I said that right. I probably didn't, sorry. But this condition is, uh, this condition causes chronic inflammation in the brain. And her doctors noticed that all of her seizures were coming from her right hemisphere. So Jodie and her parents were told that the only option was to perform a hemispherectomy if she had any hope of being treated with epilepsy. So at the age of three and a half, she had half of her brain removed. Amazingly, today she lives, leads a normal life. The only indicator of the fact that she only has one half of her brain is a limp and reduced movement in her left arm. But she dances and she lives a completely normal life. Um, and how was this possible? I mean, 10 days after her operation, she was walking out of the hospital and going home. And the doctors think that this is because her brain had actually already begun to adapt to um, only using the left side of her brain because her right side was so kind of almost fired up and it had all these mini electrical explosions going on the whole time and it just wasn't able to be used for normal functioning. So the doctors believe that her brain had already started to readapt and rewire itself so that the left-hand side of the brain took control of... Um, of the rest of her. Um, so yeah, this is a really nice example of just how plastic the brain is and its amazing ability to adapt. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and I think it's definitely a really nice note to end on. So we realised that this episode is our longest yet, where we just go on for like, I don't even know how long, I think about 40 minutes about the brain. But it's just so interesting and we just, when we were brainstorming things to talk about, we just came up with more and more things because there's just so much to, to explore with the brain. 
and we haven't even covered like we haven't even made a dent in our understanding of it at all so i think there definitely may be a lot of episodes to come about neurobiology but more importantly i think just doing a quick recap of what we've done today so basically we introduced a uh, melatonin which is a really exciting hormone in regards to the brain and then we talked about how the brain is neuroplastic and how it makes a lot of different connections how this might potentially link to ai and then we also talked about why the brain needs water fat and blood we talked about headaches migraines why it can't feel pain brain free sleep paralysis and then we ended as amelia just did on hemispherectomy so there are so many things to talk about in regards to the brain that we basically just came up with a starter of a few things that we could talk about today so hopefully you enjoyed it yeah as she said that was a dipping our toes into the waters that is the brain and how complex and broad the topic is and how exciting it is so we hope you enjoyed having just a little taster into some of the amazing things that our brain does thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next time yeah i really like how you said um dipping our feet into the water because dipping our toes into the water rather because that you know 75 percent of the brain is made of water And just as an end, thank you so much for listening and bye.